1: Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the January 25th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we present our fourth show of the new year, filled with both sadness and hope. We say goodbye to Mark Bingham's mom, and revisit a classic Gaytino report about the very funny Sandra Vallis. But first, we gay back a bit in honor of Pete Buttigieg, who recently gave props to an out-gay man who paved the way through the political minefield he walks in his confirmation process as Secretary of Transportation. We've dusted off our interview with James Hormel. James Hormel is an American philanthropist,
2: grandson of the founder of Hormel Foods, and the first openly gay man to represent the United States as an ambassador. I'm
3: Jim Hormel, and I'm here to discuss a book called Fit to Serve. This book started in my mind around the time that I completed an ambassadorship in 2000, and 10 years later, we finally got the edited copy to a publisher.
2: What was the hardest part of looking back over your life?
3: The most painful part in looking back over my entire life was the period from about 1981 through the end of the 80s when the AIDS epidemic came upon us and literally hundreds of my friends were dying. And in the earliest days, nobody knew why. And then when we started to find out why, nobody was doing anything about it. It was a very, very difficult time. It's hard to remember. We try to put things like that out of our minds. But in the process of writing this book, it all came back, and it was very painful.
2: Tell me about when you first kind of realized you were different. I was coming into
3: my puberty, and I noticed that I had feelings and attractions for other boys that I didn't see expressed by other boys. And so I started wondering whether, first of all, there was something going on that was different. And secondly, when I thought, yes, there was, was it something wrong with me? Was there something wrong with the way I was feeling? Because it seemed unique in my surroundings. And it took me a very long time. Back in those days, people didn't talk about sex at all, let alone sexuality. So I didn't know anything. And at the same time, inside me was all this stuff sort of bubbling away. And uh, then when I had the temerity to take some sort of approach about it, I wasn't recognized, I wasn't satisfied, I wasn't fulfilled, and I didn't understand it. I had a, a little period of time when I fantasized about having a twin with whom I could communicate because then I'd have somebody who really understood me.
2: Ironically, in the 1950s, you weren't really alone because most gay men were in the closet with you.
3: There were reasons that people didn't come out. The main one was that uh, in every state, homosexual acts were criminal. People went to jail, and people were arrested even on the suspicion that they were gay. And uh, when I eventually moved to Chicago, even in the 60s, that was happening. Police would raid bars and bathhouses, and the next day... People's names would be published in the Chicago Tribune, sometimes on the front page, and it was terrible. It was outrageous, in my opinion. I saw the name of a friend of mine one time, a dentist in Chicago, and the next time I saw him, I mentioned how distressed I was to see his name reported like that, and he said to me, don't worry about it. He said, my clientele has doubled since then. (laughs)
2: Well, take me back to 1955. Tell me about Alice.
3: Alice and I went to Swarthmore College. That's where I met her. We dated. We were engaged. And two years after we had met, we married. Alice and I were in love. And at that time, I was trying to convince myself and everybody else that I was straight. There was a wonderful relationship. And we got married. We were both very young. Looking back, it seems a little rushed, although two years doesn't sound rushed. But we were married without my ever communicating to her that I had these other things going on inside me, these other feelings, these attractions to men. Not having told her about any of that before the marriage made it extremely difficult, in fact, in my mind, impossible to tell her afterward. So... We were married for 10 years. We had children. We had five lovely children. I have 14 grandchildren now. I have five great-grandchildren. I'm very proud
2: of them all. Tell me about the end of the marriage and going on with your life as a gay man.
3: Well, the marriage ended because Alice and I simply weren't communicating. I mean, the fact that I had withheld from her a major part of me started shutting us both down. And ultimately, it was Alice who said, this isn't working anymore, and it's not good for either of us, and we need to separate. And I started then seeing people a little more openly, but I was still closeted. I was not telling anybody that I was gay for another couple of years. This is the mid-60s. During that time, the whole social climate was changing rapidly. Then there was Vietnam, and there were... The social sexual revolutionaries. And uh, there was just a lot of stuff that sort of encouraged me to take another look at my own life and see where I really fit in. 1968 was an explosion. There were riots in Paris, there was the Prague Spring that was so ruthlessly put down by the Soviets. And then in this country, the political assassinations, there was Martin Luther King, there was Robert Kennedy. Terrible things were happening, terrible things that were wrenching to our society. And people, I think, were forced to examine those things.
2: When you moved to San Francisco in 1977, Armstead Maupin's Tales of the City was still a newspaper column. Harvey Milk was running for local office and... You immediately became involved in the battle against something called Proposition 6.
3: Prop 6 is very similar to today's Prop 8. It was an attempt to prevent gay people, lesbians and gay men, from teaching in the public schools in California. And it was sort of a a spinoff of the successful effort that was conducted by Anita Bryant in Dade County, Miami, Florida. So inspired by her success, there were members of the California legislature who introduced this proposition onto the ballot. And it looked at first as if it would win handily, but a campaign was put together that involved as many prominent straight people as possible to point out how preposterous it would be if this happened in California. And ultimately, the tide was turned and the proposition was defeated. And it was defeated fairly substantially. I think we were all surprised at the margin of victory, and it was very encouraging. I don't know what the pull was, but there was something that drew me into politics having to do with fairness, having to do with making things more true and honest. And it's interesting because that's what I was not doing with my own life at first, it took me a, quite a while to start making things true and honest.
2: But that didn't dissuade you from getting involved in politics on the national level.
3: What happened was in 1978 or 79, I had conversations with um, a couple of Minnesota friends, and Dean and Larry By, who were in San Francisco or in and out and with Jim Foster, who had started the Society for Individual Rights before the 70s, I believe, they had an idea for a national political action committee. The reasoning behind it was uh, that people in Washington were paying no attention to gay-related issues. There were members of Congress who honestly said that they didn't have any gay people in their constituency. So I think Steve in particular wanted to show that this was not so. But uh, Steve was also trying to run an organization called the Gay Rights National Lobby, and nobody would pay any attention to him. David Goodstein said, well, they're not going to pay attention to you until you start raising money, because that's what speaks in Washington. And David actually went on a tour to raise money for an organization that was called the Human Rights Campaign Fund. The fund uh, started in 1980, and I was a part of its original board. And that sort of drew me into the national political scene. Not that I didn't care before then, because I certainly did, but that was probably the time when I started becoming very active on the national scene.
2: Tell me about President Clinton, beating him, and what followed from that.
3: I met him at an event where he spoke in San Francisco, and it was an event on behalf of his candidacy. This was early in 92, and he was probably in third place at the time in a rather large field of candidates. And he was being besieged at that time by stories about a relationship with Jennifer Flowers and some other things that were in his background. And when I heard him speak, it was to an audience of San Francisco business types, And he said quite gratuitously, among other things, that he wanted to see the LGBT constituency properly represented. And when he talked about ending discrimination based on sexual orientation, it was the first time that I had heard it out of the mouth of a national candidate for anything. And it came, as I said, in a speech directed not at gay constituents, but at the business community in San Francisco. So... I made a point of introducing myself and uh, got the impression that he was a person who really did care and who really intended to make change. I had a friend, David Mixner, who had known him from Arkansas, and uh, David seemed to think very highly of him and said that he didn't believe that there were any other personal issues that would raise themselves during the campaign. So I became a supporter.
2: Such a big supporter in the fact that... In return, Clinton nominated you as ambassador to Luxembourg. But your confirmation was really, really brutal. As a philanthropist, you'd given money to the San Francisco Library. And somewhere in their stacks were art books. And in a few of those art books were nude pictures. So you were called a pornographer, even a pedophile.
3: The pedophilia piece came from Pat Robertson. And it was typical Pat Robertson, and he made a big deal out of absolutely nothing. I was furious, and I was hurt, actually, by it, because I thought it was in in terrible taste
2: and extremely insulting and, and very offensive. Well, tell me about Luxembourg. Finally get approved, you go there. How was it? You had a partner at the time. How did that work out?
3: Well, Luxembourg was very receptive, as it turned out. During the time of my nomination, I had to sort of sit by silently because I couldn't speak out in challenge of these accusations. And it was sort of the same for Luxembourg. People went to the ambassador, the Luxembourg ambassador in Washington, and said, you know, what about this guy? And and all he could say was, our government has approved his nomination, which was true. And in fact, the nomination wouldn't have been made without former approval from the country. I mean, that's just routine. So when the appointment finally occurred and I got there, I found a government that was going out of its way to welcome me. They were extremely receptive. They wanted me to feel that this was not their doing. And in fact, they were agitated, I think, because the American Senate had prevented them for two years from having the appropriate kind of representation.
2: What do you want people to take away from your book?
3: I guess that I'm especially concerned about people saying that being gay is a choice, because for me, it was not a choice. I tried very hard to do anything I could to not be gay. And uh, I look back on my life and think about when I realized I was left-handed when I was in kindergarten, first grade, the teachers would take the pen and put it in my right hand, and I'd be seated at a desk that had a little right-handed stand on it, and I would just automatically change to my left hand, to, to right. I mean, that was just the way it was for me, and, and when I look at my sexuality, I think it's the same sort of thing. It's in the DNA, and, and there may be degrees of homosexuality, as there are degrees of left-handedness, and there are people who are ambidextrous. But I cannot see it as a choice, and I very strongly believe that if people would not consider it as a choice, they would be more receptive to the pleas for equal treatment. Equality is what we're seeking, and I don't think that we can really get there without exposing this kind of thinking. And the other thing that I feel is very important is coming out which after all is a way of exposing the fallacious thoughts about gay people. If all of us would come out then they would realize that we are their employers we're their consumers, we're their families, we're their friends
2: This has been a conversation with Ambassador James C. Hormel His book is called Fit to Serve and he certainly was this is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
4: I don't believe in hatred. I don't believe in shame but most of all
1: I don't believe that things will never change as seems... scene Today James Hermel is 88 years old and lives in San Francisco. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break.
5: Xena, Warrior Princess coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Known for her fearlessness, strength, and expertise with a sword, Xena first appeared in 1995 in Hercules' The Legendary Journey. In the late 1990s, she got her own spin-off series, Warrior Princess. Seen in more than 115 countries, it was the world's most widely syndicated television program. Sexily clad in leather, Xena battled giants, monsters, and the evil ones with her sidekick, Gabrielle. Their relationship became the backbone of the series. With writers and producers intentionally introducing sexual innuendo and subtext, lesbians saw a level of desire between the two women, while the rest of the audience didn't seem to notice. In fact, Zena's second season saw a huge spike in websites devoted to detailing the subtext dialogue as well as the pair's intense eye contact. Lesbians were on the edge of their seats. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Brenda Thornton.
6: Hi, I'm Chaz Bono, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out loud and proud since
1: 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. And now, a Tino report with actor, comic, singer, badass, Sandra Vallis. <laughs>
4: Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Gaytino Report, voices from the Latino LGBTQ community. I'm Dan Guerrero, or if you can roll your R's, Guerrero. Tonight's guest, a pistol. Sandra Valls is a stand-up comic you may have caught on Showtime's The Latin Divas of Comedy, Nickelodeon's Nick Mom Night Out, or One Night Stand-Up on Logo or really at any top comedy club anywhere in the country. An actor, singer, and writer that plays a mean piano. Sandra is also a self-proclaimed badass. I suspect that may be her proudest accomplishment. I'm a little scared, but... Hello, Sandra.
7: Dan. Get, I can't roll my R's. Really? Get, but I'm good with my tongue anyway, so Oh, my God. Get, can we be blue in this program? Can we...
4: How blue do you want to get? I don't know. Why am I thinking of that famous Bet Davis quote from All About Eve? Fasten your seat belts. It's There's going to be a, be bumpy, a bumpy, ride. bumpy night. Yeah, <laughs> bumpy yeah. night
7: or bumpy ride, whatever you want. Whatever bumps,
4: but not too blue.
7: <laughs> not too blue. Yes.
4: Let me ask you: Does being a badass take a lot of work, or does it come like really naturally to you?
7: That's just who I am. Anyone who's an activist, anyone who stands up for their rights, anyone who's like no. You're not going to suppress me or make me shrink. I think they're a badass.
4: You know what? It's the same like diva. Diva is not a bad thing. It Mm-mm. just means you want things done well and professionally. And if that makes you a diva, then let's all salute divas.
7: I salute the divas. The <laughs> badass divas.
4: <laughs> you have a great comedy career going in for a good many years now. But you came to it by accident, right?
7: Mm-hmm. Well, I was a musician. I still am. And I'm you know a singer. I was in a band. This was in Boston years ago. And I was seeing somebody, and all her tribe of people were like, you're just so funny. And, of course, I'm funny. I'm the class clown, whatever. But I'm like, no, I'm a lead singer. I'm an actor. No, you're so funny. You should be a comic. And I'm like, "Mm, whatever. So she signs me up for comedy classes at a local college, like adult comedy classes. And in the process, we were having issues. And so we were going to couples therapy, of course, because we're lesbians. (laughs) In the middle of it all, she's like, I'm done. This is not working. Then she goes, well, what about the comedy class? Are you still going? I said, I don't want to go. Who wants to laugh? I was just dumped. And so then my best friend Chris was like, girl, you should go to make friends. She took all your friends. (laughs) (gasps) Lesbians choose sides. I didn't do anything. Yeah, all her friends chose her. And then I ended up with like only two people. I'm like, gee, I went to make friends. And you did. And I made a lot of friends and I made a career out of
4: it. (laughs) You started the class because everyone said you were so funny. You were so funny. Were you a funny kid growing up in Laredo, Texas? I mean, you got to be something in Laredo, Texas. But...
7: <laughs> yeah, I was. I was funny. I really loved making my parents laugh. My dad's a great storyteller, and he would make other people laugh. And I was just silly. And I always felt different. It's so cliche for a lesbian, gay child to be like, oh, I feel different. But I did feel different. And so My icebreaker or my way of fitting in was to make people laugh. I loved to laugh, and so I made other people laugh. I was silly. I talked way too much. I was most humorous in high school, and I was always voted funny, funny, funny. But I never thought of it as a career. Mm -hmm. I thought I'll just be a comedic actor.
4: Do you find yourself limited to LGBTQ nights at comedy clubs or Latino night at comedy clubs? Do you find yourself limited to that genre?
7: Well, I don't limit myself. They limit you. People limit you. Promoters limit you. They like boxes. They really love, like, Latino night, like you said, or LGBTQ night or women's night or something like that. I get in where I fit in. So for me, you know, I don't feel limited. Funny is funny. The audiences that laugh the loudest at different kind of jokes are straight people. And I, for me, I love LGBTQ rooms because I don't have to explain the joke. Sure. I can just sit and talk about our idiosyncrasies and or latinos i could spanglish as much as i want when i have straight audiences who aren't latino (laughs) it's a different take on the joke because we Mm -hmm. have to explain and or they find it like for example i have this one joke that i say for the mexican a sheet is like the cloak of invisibility like you know we put sheets on things we don't have storage units we have like sabanas like we, we just cover it up with a sheet and it doesn't exist well, for Latinos, we laugh in a different, familiar way, but for non-Latinos, they crack up completely differently. So I don't limit myself. However, if your niche is the LGBTQ community or women or Latinos, yeah, you go with that. Is sure. that who's responding to you? Yeah, of course. And little by little, you become universal,
4: and the laughs are different. In my solo show, Gay it's very different if I have a heavily Latino audience mm-hmm. or heavily gay or when I did it at the Kirk Douglas, mostly older white folk. Mm-hmm. The laughs are different. It doesn't mean you change your act or change the things, but it is a different energy.
7: It's a different energy. The energy is different. When I'm among my LGBTQ people, it is a validation of who we are. It is a pride thing like, now let's get out there and... Kick some ass and still stand proud in who we are. So that is how I basically end my show. And Or they feel like, yay, somebody gets me, which is awesome. When I do straight crowds, it's an educational thing. Like, here's how gay people are. Here's how I am. Or here's what I feel gay and straight have funny about them. And so they leave a little bit changed, hopefully. Like, oh, I never knew that about the LGBT community. So it's kind of the healing profession that i'm in i believe that comedians are healers laughter heals i think it's a release i think it's so important to laugh and laugh at ourselves and with ourselves if i can add a little bit of levity to your day and also have a message while you're laughing insert a message of encouragement of enlightenment of empowerment then i did my job i think that's a beautiful thing and we don't always start out that way we start out as comics i just want to be funny whatever and and i'll just say things and and you find your voice And as we get older, (laughs) as you and I both know, we mature. Crap starts happening to us in our life. And then as a comic, you are a social commentator. And so you start to observe what makes me happy, what makes me feel good. I no longer want to feel dramatic and like crappy, you know. I want to feel good and and grow. And so a lot of things have happened in the world (laughs) and in our own lives that I feel a responsibility with that microphone. I feel a responsibility to empower people and to make them feel good and to heal their spirit. When you laugh and when you can look at your life sort of outside of yourself and try to make it better or try to not get so caught up in your darkness, then I did some spiritual healing.
4: This is Dan Guerrero with the Gaytino Report, and I'm talking to funny lady Sandra Valls.
7: When somebody asks me, what's your comedy about? I say my life, and they're like, is it mostly gay? Well, I'm a Mexican gay person, so <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's things that I find funny, including my girlfriend or my ex-relationship where I had kids, so I talked a lot about kids. I find them really crazy. So I talked about that.
4: Universal theme.
7: Well, whatever you're living, if you're commenting on your own life, that's what it is. And so I just feel, not everyone feels this, I feel I have a responsibility in that microphone, especially as I get older, to at least leave them a little happier than they were before. And if I made you laugh, I did my job.
4: And I feel as a Latino, we also have a responsibility to get our stories out there, to empower. That is a responsibility.
7: Yes. Again, I don't think we have enough positive and inclusive representation in our LGBTQ community or Latino or women, (laughs) you know. So I come out like three times or ageism even. I'm 52. Uh And people are like, why do you go around saying you're Because it's empowering. People feel that people in their 50s have to look or act a certain way. Look at me. I don't think I look whatever 50 is or act or feel. Well, I feel. And last night I stayed up too late. So, yeah. I can't party anymore like I used to. But it's important to say we each can create our own life. We can create whatever we want out of ourselves. And you can't tell me who I am. And it's been a battle, and you know this, to be a strong, powerful gay person, Latina, woman. It's a challenge, unfortunately. You know, when I first moved to L.A. and I was talking about being Mexican, somebody actually said, Don't tell people that you're Mexican because I'm very pale. Mm -hmm. No, no, don't say that because you know. I was like, I know. What do you mean? I and don't say you're gay. This was in 2001. Yeah. So that made me want to say it more. (laughs) Mexican and gay.
4: Also, you're a priestess. Tell me about
7: that. I'm an Ifa priestess. It's a nature-based African religion. The only thing you can compare it to is Native American religion, but it's vastly different. It deals with energies in the world, which some people call deities. So, for example, Yemaya, Oshun, Shango, these are all parts of ourselves, but these are all energies in the world. The Oshun is the energy of love and unconditional love and abundance and joy, and Yemaya is the mother and the rebirth energy, and she's found in the ocean, and Oshun's found in a river and that kind of thing. So it's very intricate to get into. It's Orisha worship. Orisha, which means the energies of the world. Uh, so anyway, I went through a uh, transformation, a spiritual cleansing, a year of white where I couldn't touch or hug anyone and couldn't wear any other colors and anything. But it was life changing because I'm very intuitive. I'm sort of psychic. And I have now embraced that I'm a healer. We all are. But I didn't want to embrace that. I got a message when I was praying one day and it said, take your place at the table. Toma tu lugar. What is that? What do you mean? No, it's a lot of responsibility. But a spiritual warrior is not for the weak and faint of heart. And it's a calling that, oh, it's annoying. It's really hard. But I believe that we're all here on earth for a reason and a mission. And when you step into that, and I just happen to be a comedian. I mean, you could be a spiritual warrior and be a mother. And I believe they all are and they should be. Mm -hmm. Or a bus driver or whatever. But how I'm doing it how you're healing the world, how I am, is with my comedy, with my message. And so my comedy changed a little, actually a lot. I still think funny is funny. I still I can still bitch about the damn mockingbird that won't shut up because I can't sleep all night or all morning. I could still be that. I'm a human. But there is a everything's going to be okay because I say it so. You create your own reality. You create your own life. And you can choose. To look at the crap in life or look at the miracles in life. And every day is that choice. You know this. You wake up some days like, oh, there's nothing I could choose that's, ugh. And then you go, okay, I'm grateful for. The other day I ate too much and I felt like crap. But I went, you know what? Thank you so much that I have enough food that I ate too much, actually. There was a time in my life where I didn't eat enough because I was struggling, you know, that I can Walk. That I have a bed, that I have water. Just little things like that that we take for granted. But when you count your blessings, and I'm not saying that I am always have the best attitude because I really don't. But I struggle and I really challenge myself to see the good in people. I love this quote that says, don't treat people as bad as they are. Treat them as good as you are. And this other quote says, you want to be a badass? Be kind to everyone. Dot, dot, dot. Everyone, that was (laughs) was like, oh, so often we want to be encompassed by darkness and this one. And Mm
4: -mm. it sounds corny when they say choose to be happy, but it's really true and choose to be grateful. I go to Gelson's a block from where I live and I see the produce, and I go, oh my god, there are places in this country they would drop dead if they saw. That. They don't have a scrap, and we don't think anything of it. Nine kinds of apples, 20 kinds of grapes. We have to be grateful. We have so much. And it's harder today to be grateful because there's so much evil going on. But you really can't get buried in that. I have friends who are literally immobilized. You know, they are by what's going on. And that's the last thing we need to do.
7: I believe there's more good people in the world than bad people. And I don't even believe there's bad people. They're just lost and broken. I believe that good people should rise up in the multitudes. Your friends can slowly rise up and change the world with your positive energy. And I know some people listening might be like, oh, that one. She sounds all hoity-toity, Oprah, Vonsant, whatever. No, I'm not saying that. And I'm not invalidating anyone who's going through a tough-ass time that's just really hard and F everyone. I totally get that I've been there.
4: But it is difficult, what you say, I totally agree with. But, you know, the Women's March, we all went out there. Look at that. No one gave a rat's ass. What did Did, it do? Did no one give a rat's ass? I don't know. Did things change?
7: I think people change on a fundamental, personal level. It might not have changed a bill right away or government, but in Buddhism we say... One human revolution in one person can transform the world. One person. I agree. Because now you come and change him and you change her and you smile at this one. It's a ripple effect. Then they might treat their partners better or their co-workers better. And slowly but surely, you spread goodness. So, yes, these women did change each other. I did feel more empowered to go out and keep changing the audience, keep healing the audiences, keep making them understand That there's good in the world.
4: I agree. Before you go, how about tell us your website?
7: Welovesandra.com.
4: And you know what? We do. Thank you. (laughs) Gracias, Sandra. Thanks for being here today. And gracias, listeners. I'm Dan Guerrero. And I've been talking with singer, funny lady, high priestess, and badass, Sandra Vols. Thanks for tuning in to The Gaytino Report. Until next time, ten orgullo. Be proud.
1: Next, we'll take a quick break. Don't
5: touch that dial. Xena, the last chapter, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. During Xena's sixth and final season on TV, the show had become the highest rated in syndication, opening the doors to scores of new female action heroes in film and TV. With Xena and her sidekick Gabrielle fighting against evil forces, they became heroes to women and icons to lesbians. In the culmination of the season, Xena was beheaded, dismembered, and burned, leaving Gabrielle to travel the world alone. With thousands of fans in shock, many chose instead to remember episode 18 shown a few weeks earlier in which Xena and Gabrielle ride off on horseback together. To this day, scores of lesbians refuse to view that final episode because historically, many stories have been written in which the lesbians die in the end. Even TV guides said Zena deserved better. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Brenda Thornton. Hi, I'm Amanda Burse, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974.
1: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to IMRU Radio. A bit of news that took a few weeks to get out hit us especially hard at IMRU. Mark Bingham's mom, Alice Hoagland, beloved in the LGBT community and a past guest on IMRU, had passed away on December 22nd at the age of 71. So tonight, in her honor, we revisit an interview she did with Steve Pride about the life of her son and a documentary about his death.
8: I'm Alice Hoagland. Uh, I'm the mother of Mark Bingham.
2: Mark was incredibly protective of you. One of the phrases repeated over and over in the documentary is, Don't tell my mom.
8: Oh, yeah. Well, that's kind of the way it was. I learned a lot about Mark after he was killed, and I learned things like months and years later. His uh, rugby coach in high school, I didn't mean to let the cat out of the bag, Dan said when he told me there wasn't really true, that his, his big thigh cut did not really come from a Fijian farmer. It came from a plate glass door that was charged through by Mark, trying to get away from the police down there. And the time that Mark actually knocked over, tackled the Stanford tree, which is the mascot for Stanford University... I didn't hear about that until after Mark was bailed out of jail by my brother Vaughn, Mark's uncle, and uh, it was frightening to behold (laughs) and to learn about it later that the Stanford tree had been taken out by an angry and irate uh, and slightly overwrought cow guy named Mark Bingham. As I understand it, the fingerprints that were generated when Mark was arrested for taking out the Stanford tree were the ones that were used to identify him at the crash site. In a crash like that, the human body acts very much like a large, soft envelope, and the things that are left are feet and hands. And I imagine that that's what was left of Mark when they shipped him back in a beautiful casket in the aftermath of 9-11.
2: On September 11th, Two thousand one. You were visiting your brother.
8: Six forty-four in the morning. The phone rang, and we were all dead asleep out in Saratoga. You know, a continent away from New York. And I thought, Oh, I can't get up and answer the phone. I hope somebody does. I heard it ring again, and I heard Carol Phipps, a family friend, answer it. And I heard her pad past the room where I was sleeping, and. I heard her knock on Vaughn and Kathy's door, and I heard Kathy get out of bed and run to the phone, and I heard Kathy say, "We love you too, Mark. Let me get your mom." And she saw me standing in the hallway, and she said, "Alice, come talk to Mark. He's been hijacked." And boy, I was trying hard to get my head around that one. Came and, and uh, listened. I heard Mark's voice. He said, "Mom, this is Mark Bingham," and. <laughs> He often said, this is Mark Bingham when he was talking to business associates on the phone, but he didn't usually say that to me. <laughs> and I could tell that he was trying to be very focused and composed and business-like, so he let that slip out. Mom, this is Mark Bingham. I just want to tell you that I love you. I'm on a flight from Newark to San Francisco, and there are three guys on board who have taken over the plane, and they say they have a bomb. You believe me, don't you, Mom? And I said, yes, Mark, I believe you. Who are those guys? And then he was sort of distracted, and I heard the voices of the guys he was making this big plan of revolt with. They were talking, and they were already making their plan. And then he came back to me, and he said, I'm calling you from the airphone. And the FBI told me later that he was in 25 DEF calling. It was a big, empty airplane. There were only 40 innocent people on board.
2: Alice, tell me about listening to the tape.
8: The cockpit voice recording was really an eerie and and ghastly experience in a way, and yet it was very cathartic and important that we heard it. We were invited by the FBI to come to uh, Princeton, New Jersey to listen to it, and a bunch of Flight 93 family members sat together with uh, headsets on and an overhead screen with translations of the Arabic that was being spoken. And it's a 31-minute tape that runs in a continuous loop, so if it gets to be 31 Minutes, then it starts erasing again. So the actual takeover of the airplane by the terrorists, Siad Jara and his three thug buddies, was actually erased by the time, uh, because the plane crashed 31 minutes plus after the time of the takeover. Fortunately, the takeover was actually caught because we think that Leroy Homer, the uh, first officer, keyed his mic open, and the words that were spoken by Captain Dahl, get out of here, get out of here, came down and were heard by the fellows ground control in Cleveland. So we do have a pretty good audio record of the takeover right up through the crash. The first 20 minutes or so of the cockpit voice recording are pretty dreary. I can remember hearing such sounds as a flight attendant working just outside the cockpit door. Sometimes you hear phrases coming out of the very automated system there, and I can remember the sound of the autopilot kicking in and out. It was unusual for it to go in and out like that, but I realized that the terrorist pilot, quote-unquote, Zia Jara, did not know how to turn off the autopilot, so he kept it on. He was fighting with it, and He had dropped the altitude of the plane so low, it's supposed to be flying 30,000 feet when it's going 600 miles an hour, but he was going 600 miles an hour at about 2,000 feet and then 1,500 feet and then 1,000 feet. People in Pittsburgh remember the sight of a great big 757 out of control, whipping its wings back and forth and flying low over their city, and it crashed a few minutes later, 90 miles south in Shanksville. And what we heard as family members was the sound that was picked up by three microphones, two in the headsets of the pilots, and one mounted on the aft bulkhead. We could hear the sound of people mounting a revolt in the back. And we could hear the lead terrorist asking his buddy, are they fighting? Are they fighting in the back? Hold up the hatchet so they will see it and be afraid. He was thinking that if you hold up the fire axe or the peephole, the people that are outside can see it. Well, that's not the way that peephole worked. It was heartening to hear how frightened those terrorists were when they realized that their plan, their ugly plan, years in the making, was going to fail because three or four or five or six guys in the back decided that they were going to put up some resistance. They took a vote, and they grabbed what weapons they could, and they ran forward. And I can just visualize Mark with his long legs running over those seats and his buddies running up the aisles on foot. This was my workplace, and now it was a battleground where my son and his good friends there, his pickup buddies, also athletes,
2: this is Steve Pride. I'm talking to Alice Hoagland about her son, Mark Bingham, who was aboard United Airlines Flight 93 on September 11, 2001
8: a football quarterback, another rugby player, a basketball star from Mark's very alma mater, Los Gatos High School, and Mark Bingham and whoever else, Alan Bevan, Richard Guadagno, wonderful people on board that flight, all of them athletic. They ran forward and you could hear the sound of it as the cockpit voice recording picked up. Now we didn't hear Arabic voices so much. Now we heard English spoken in American accent by a bunch of very motivated guys and it was get him get him in the cockpit in the cockpit if we don't get in there we'll die and Dina Burnett tells me that that was the sound of of her husband Tom and then the other guys picked it up it reminded me so much of a rugby match and the other guys picked it up I could hear Mark yelling in the cockpit and Alan Bevan perhaps and Todd and Jeremy and Tom all of them chanting like that encouraging one another and you could hear the sounds of blows being struck And you could hear the sound of the two terrorists being dispatched. It was a very vigorous time. They fought as best they could. They used the liquor cart as a battering ram against the cockpit door. And I wish I'd had another minute when Mark called me. Mom, this is Mark Bingham. I just want to tell you I love you. I wish that I'd had another minute before before we were cut off. And I could have told him, Mark, there is a cockpit key just a few feet away from the cockpit door. You get in there. You turn it. It's easy. It's a flimsy door. It pulls out into the cabin. And you can get in there easily. But they didn't know that. And according to the FBI, they used a liquor cart from the forward galley as a battering ram against the cockpit door, and you could hear the crockery, the glass, and plates pitching back and forth in that galley. It was an onslaught that went on for a good seven, eight, ten minutes. And Ziad Jara finally realized that he was going to have to stop them by doing what he did, and an eyewitness on the ground says that he saw this enormous plane rise straight up and come up over the horizon and tip upside down and plunge straight down into the ground. The FBI tells us that the cockpit probably sheared off. They found some remains in the burning hemlock trees. But when the paramedics and the other emergency equipment arrived as as best they can a few minutes later out there in Shanksville, way out in a remote area, they couldn't find any evidence of the airplane. They saw pieces of uh, paper floating around, and and it, it took some digging to find the remains of the airplane. It had buried itself so thoroughly and so fast in the loamy soil out there in southwest Pennsylvania that there was nothing left of it. They had to dig it out, and they found the cockpit voice recorder, and the flight data recorder. And I was so gratified on the late afternoon of September 11th to get verification from the FBI of what I'd been telling people, that it was a studly group of passengers that got together and mounted a revolt. It was not a coincidence or an accident that the plane came down short of the terrorist target of the Capitol Dome in Washington.
2: Watching the home movies of Mark in the documentary, I it's pretty clear that he would have been impervious to my gaydar. So when he was younger, did you ever have any suspicions about his sexuality?
8: I don't have gaydar, but Mark used that expression a lot. But I was so dumbfounded when he came out to me on August 27th, 1991. I was just astounded. I did not receive the news very well. Mark really set me on a spiritual journey. And... He has taught me how to live my life, and he has taught me how important it is to be open to people who are not like me, and to realize that there is much love and redemption to be to be earned. And I need to ask the forgiveness of the gay community for being, you know, just slightly. Uh, uh, unaware and uh, ungracious at first. Fortunately, Mark had the grace to be patient with me, and I'm so grateful that he had enough love for both of us for a while. And I did come around and I began to realize, hey I need to revise my attitudes and I need to speak out against the stereotyping that the gay community is receiving. And Mark tells me that there are not enough gay heroes and people to look up to as role models. And that needs to change. And as Mahatma Gandhi said, be the change. And and that's what I want to do. I want to be the change. And I'm in such good company Now, there are so many people who are speaking up and coming to the fore and being good spokespersons for the LGBT community. I think that everyone, everyone should be fully enfranchised with the mainstream and should be proud of their sexuality and marry whom they love.
2: This has been a conversation with Mark Bingham's mom, Alice Hoagland. The documentary is called With You. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening.
1: He stood up on a Tuesday morning In the terror he was brave And he made his choice And without a doubt A hundred lives he must have saved Now you cannot change
0: this And you can't erase this
1: On January 6th, 2021... Ivanka Trump referred to domestic terrorists storming the Capitol building as patriots. But isn't someone storming the terrorists flying a plane bound for the Capitol building more of a patriot? Just saying. Tonight's last word is a poem from Mark Doty.
6: This poem is set in the animal shelter in Brewster, Massachusetts, near where I live in Provincetown. They shove and tumble around us, on the concrete floor, the little ones, just as they must have crowded around the gates of this world, eager to live. So much to be licked on earth, what work! All mouth, sure of their reception, they've hurried to a realm they know will feed them and they open their new faces to us, tongues and teeth apprehending our sweetness and pity, smells and salts. This is here the minds register. Yes, and this, and this is good. The older ones, each in their separate pens, consider what's to be made of betrayal. This one's serenely still, waiting for us to make the first gesture. This all-evident eagerness muzzle against the grid. The one who's been here longest cries, though not to us, and that one, unclaimed, blank placard above her cage, simply sleeps in a far corner, unavailable. Road under the Hellgate inscriptions, too big, no time, moving to another state. They've lost local habitations, and some of them names, though most carry forward a single word. Bosco, Laredo, Jack. All of the past they're allowed to keep in this vague limbo far from affections, locations, and routines. I know. Leash to no one. The plain daily habits gone. Who are we, then? Nothing but eagerness or caution, though only a little. Couldn't these various distances dissolve at a touch, a dozen touches? Not to be forgotten, the blank hours, but put in place. Oh, Dakota and Brandy and Jimbo, just as we wanted to be born once. Don't we want to be delivered again, even knowing the nothing love may come to? Oh, lucky, and body, and red, we put our tongues to the world.
1: Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at imruradio.org. And a reminder, we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. We close with the latest and Possibly the last Randy Rainbow song parody, commenting on the Trump legacy. Good night.
0: I'm a very stable genius. Two million one hundred two thousand four hundred minutes with just one president so unhinged and unfit. 2,400 minutes. How do you measure four years of this? In scandals, impeachments, in porn stars and Scarabucci's.
7: Genius.
0: Seasons of truth Seasons of truth. Two million a hundred two thousand falsehoods he tweeted Basically 14,976 times he didn't have a plan 11,780 volts, he said he needed. How do you measure for years with this orange garbage case In Spicer's, in Conway's, in Sanders, and Mackenzie's. In fake news, he tapes alternative facts. 1,460 days, but who's counting? <laughs> Who could keep track of all? President Trump? Well, former President Trump. Oh, God, that makes me so horny.
7: I say that is not in a braggadocious way it's because
0: braggadocious stand back and stand by in covid cofifes and russians and paper towels and mothers red hats and words he can't spell in two million a hundred two thousand four hundred minutes how will you remember four years stuck in hell mcdonald jessica